is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latenry. And today we are talking about our latest listener choice album, which was chosen by Brian Kazmierski. It is the 2012 Royal Thunder album, CVI. Indeed, their debut album. Yes, because didn't they, did they do an EP before that? That is correct. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. They got picked up for a record deal uh, by Relapse, I think it was, on the strength of the EP and a few live shows. Yes, now uh, I remember. Which, if you've seen any clips of them live, uh, you can understand why, because uh, Melanie Parsons, the uh, lead vocalist, is kind of a force to be reckoned with on stage. <laughs> I would suspect that, given her vocal performance on the album so like oh, that, sure. yeah, that's yeah. what i would it, to me i almost picture it as like an all or nothing thing like either she's amazing live or this does not hold up live so it's great to hear that she's amazing live oh no she is yeah have you not seen the video of you know that um two minutes to late night uh metal late late show thing i do know um, that thing but i have not seen any video with she, royal thunder uh right yeah yeah because they you know at the end of the show they do um uh, they get, you know, one or more of the musicians they've been talking to and do a sort of jam with them. They had, they did a cover of Miley Cyrus's Wrecking Ball with her uh, on the vocals. And it is, it's kind of amazing. And she absolutely just blows up the stage. <laughs> it's awesome. That, that woman has pipes, I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, obviously we'll talk a lot about that in this album, but uh, this was a band that I really did not know a heck of a lot about coming in i knew of their existence and i'm i had heard i think a couple of odd songs from them but definitely had not spent time with them like i did for this episode well and i didn't know them that well i had this album i've got this album and the one after it crooked doors uh and as i mentioned i think at the end of the last show i've got this album i have have listened to it i have heard it but it's not one that i listened to a lot um, and again, we can get into that later when we get it, when we talk about the album itself. Um, but I was perhaps more familiar with them than you, but I hadn't, I didn't know a lot about the band. So that's been an interesting education, finding out about their background and her background in particular, or her and Josh Weaver, the guitarist. Um, but yeah, again, we can get into that later. So before we do that, let us, uh, quickly say, yes, this is, as you say, a listener choice. Um, uh, it's however, perhaps not the right listener choice <laughs> which is uh entirely my fault um i the confession time for those of you who aren't on the facebook group uh and haven't seen didn't see this play out shortly after the last episode um i completely screwed up the poll i and, and i mean this kind of doesn't matter because it was a random choice so right. it's random it kind of doesn't matter but you know people who know me know the sort of person i am and i always alphabetize uh by band the uh list of the listener choice things that we then you know to take the random selection from and i wrongly alphabetized one of the picks uh greg anderson uh old friend of mine from the goth days uh he picked the almighty's album soul destruction but i alphabetized it under s by title rather than band for some reason oh. it's the only one only one where I made that mistake, but for some reason I did make that mistake. And that meant, obviously, that it was underneath Royal Thunder. But it shouldn't have been. It should have been at the top, which would have bumped the list down 
And that means if we if I'd done that, then number 48, which was the the sort of winning number, as it were, would actually have been the album Rude Awakening by Prong from mm. 96, I think, uh, which was chosen by Jonathan Moore. Uh, now, like I say, it kind of doesn't matter because, you know, it's random, but fuck it. So uh, we've decided, everyone, that we are going to do two listener choices uh, this volume. What the hell? So we're still going to do Royal Thunder this episode, but next episode we're going to do that Prong album, Rude Awakening, which, if nothing else, will be interesting because we haven't really done a proper industrial album yet on this show. We've done albums with industrial influence, but we haven't really done a sort of proper, straight-up, mid-90s industrial album. And I owned one Prong album in my youth, and it was not that one. Was it the album before, the one with Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck on it? Was it uh, Prove You Wrong, I think is the name of the album? Oh, no, album? I don't think that is that one, no. Uh, see, all the Prong fans now are sort of gnashing their teeth at us and going like, how can you not know this? Prong is one of those bands, we'll talk about this next episode, Prong is one of those bands that I, I was aware of and I heard Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck, yeah. but I they just kind of passed me by in the mid-90s for some reason. Cleansing is the album before this, that's the one with... Oh, it definitely Snap- wasn't that one. Right, that's the one with Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck, which is, you know, the big single. Oh, Prove You're Wrong was 91, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, that album. was definitely a, my prong experience was definitely a, saw a video on MTV, so it was clearly one off of the Prove You Wrong album, yep. and then went out and bought the album, like, the next week at Music Outlet. That was, right, and, right. And, and liked that album well enough, but didn't, didn't progress in my prongness you know, sure. after that, it was that was sort of my, uh, that was my limited relationship with prong, but know that they've been around forever and yeah. have fond uh, well, well memories respected. of that album very much. Yeah. Um, uh, and very definitely inarguably a metal band. And I mentioned that because one of the first reactions from several people that we had when we announced this episode's choice, the, the winner of the listener choice was people complaining that Royal Thunder yeah, aren't metal. I know, man, like, I struggle with that, obviously, as, as you know. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, look, it's look, it's borderline. You know, I won't deny that it is borderline, but it is no more borderline than Def Leppard or King's X, uh, or if we'd done an ACDC. Right, album. You which, know, if, well, if we did we ACDC, will. right, if we did Back in Black, nobody, nobody is gonna say, "Oh, that's not metal. You shouldn't cover that." Come on. So well, and and it's interesting. So like, why is that, right? Well, one because ACDC is is legendary, right? And people understand their place in rock and metal history. And so like, when when we talk about a band that maybe isn't as I hesitate to even say metal, but it isn't as heavy traditionally as some of the things that we would clearly say, oh well, that feels like metal. I always try to look at that from a standpoint of like. What are the influences here? What are the ties back to the history of rock and metal? Like, where do they fit in that landscape? Because that's where I feel like it's all metal in some ways, because it's all coming from the same place. And so it's kind of like where on that spectrum they fit. And you could argue about what part of the spectrum that they sort of fit on. But yeah, I, I do. I definitely bristle every time I see a, well, that's not metal you know, sort of reaction to something, which to be very fair, our Facebook group is very good about not uh, making people yeah, feel yeah. like their, their musical choices are, are not this, but it, but it does, it is that knee jerk reaction that I think wherever, wherever you as a fan are on that spectrum, you, you sort of have this innate reaction to where does that fit? Does it fit here? Does it fit here? And I just think I'm at a different place on the spectrum where I consider a lot more things metal 
than right. what well, other people do. The other we've talked about this before. The other example would be like you know, let's say we chose Appetite for Destruction. For sure, is, any, is anybody gonna say that we shouldn't cover that? Come on, you know that's not gonna happen. So, I don't even that like is... that album, and I know how amazing it is. Like uh, to <laughs> right. be honest, like that is an album where like we could talk for three hours about that album, and I would express my disdain for a lot of it. But damned if it's not one of the heaviest and most aggressive albums I've ever heard. Right, exactly. And again, it's like, it's borderline whether it's hard rock or metal, but you, you know, you can't deny that it is borderline. It's, it's an argument you can have. It is not cut and dried. And I feel it's the same with this album. Now, later, uh, Royal Thunder albums, like the next, the album after this, Crooked Doors, and the new album, Wick, um, I say new, came out last year, uh, are less metal. They are much more straight rock. They have yeah. a lot more sort of soulful, cleaner stuff on them. You know, fair enough. I wouldn't, if if the, if the choice had been Crooked Doors, I actually would have said, no, you know, we're not, let's yeah. not have that one in the poll. But this album definitely has that metal edge. And both Josh Weaver and Melanie Parsons, Josh writes all the music and Melanie writes all the lyrics. They have both acknowledged the metal influences on their own. Oh upbringing. yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that. And but but yeah. it's funny you mentioned that piece about how like their later albums got away from some of the things that they sort of came into the scene on and that is a that is a trend that I don't like. <laughs> that is a trend that I <laughs> because I because there is to me like this album has some very heavy elements that I think are right in my wheelhouse while also still having a lot of melody which I also is right in my wheelhouse. And so yep. A lot of, but a lot of those bands that sort of burst on the scene with this uh, just blockbuster combo effort that has that heavy and that melodic, they do start to weed out some of the heavier elements over time and yeah. get more. Which, from a cynical standpoint, you could argue is more because that is a more of a mainstream uh, acceptable sound as they refine it, sort of moving forward. But in a in an evolution way, it could just be the band sort of finding their voice and and really, you know, creating their say, own sound. One of the impressions that I've got from now reading, you know, a fair few interviews and stuff with this band is that I don't think they are too concerned with chasing commercial oh, success. I definitely don't think that Melanie is for right. sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it is just a natural evolution. And look, you know, you do what you do. And, you know, I've said before, I, I have massive respect for bands that sort of do what they want to do and fuck everybody else yeah um you know so i'm not going to say they shouldn't do that but i'm in agreement with you for me it's less interesting i really like the fusion that they have here yes of kind of almost doomy swampy southern you know stoner rock with that kind of yeah a, a black sabbath edge and a bit of melody and it is just like a melting pot that results in quite a pretty heavy sound and i like that so I'm i also do i think it's a shame yeah yeah and the other um, thing too about that is like i uh, i i have thought a lot about my how i receive music and how i think about music when since we've started doing this podcast you know just mm -hmm. in terms of like what what how do i you get not? yeah <laughs> yeah like what i'm constantly like thinking about as i'm walking the dog around the neighborhood like what what is it like i i I am starting to believe that I have a very mathematical view of music in some ways, which is why I like stuff that's very technically proficient in in uh, in some ways. But also, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of uh, music for me is a very emotional experience. And so I tend to give things the label of heavy if they bring out those emotions in me, even if the music isn't 
what someone might categorize as like metal or heavy or, or whatever. Right, if, right. The, if the feel of it is heavy to me emotionally, I will often, the, to me, the whole thing carries a greater weight. And I think that is something that this album has in spades, you know, just in terms of the oh, uh, emotional yeah, vibe yeah. of it. Sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So a quick, just going back to a bit more follow-up. Uh, oh, a new patron since the last episode. Just one, Martin Schroeder. Thank you very much, Martin. Welcome. Welcome. Um, and I also, I somebody pulled me up on this, uh, as it were, on the Facebook group after the last episode, because I complete, I meant to mention it and completely forgot to mention. We talked a lot uh, in the Skyclad episode about Martin Welkier's lyrics uh, and the sort of, you know, the, the kind of playfulness and the wordplay and the the sort of soulful poetry of it all um and i completely forgot to make the comparison of course to fish the original lead guy of the band marillion yep um who does exactly or when he was with marillion anyway did exactly the same kind of thing uh i don't know if marillion were an influence on walkier i would be amazed if they weren't uh just because over here at least in the uh, 80s Marillion were a big successful band. You know, they had like top 40 hits uh, and they were a big successful rock album band. Uh, so I'd be amazed if they weren't some kind of influence. Um, and yeah, if you like Welkier's lyrics, if you appreciate that kind of really smart, witty wordplay with genuine meaning behind it, you know, not just wordplay for the sake of it, check out the uh, the first like, what, four albums from Marillion where Fish was their uh, frontman and lyricist. Um because yeah, they're they're excellent as well, and you'll get that same kind of enjoyment from them. Yeah, absolutely, and it, it, that's probably a good segue just for us to give some of the feedback from our Facebook page on the Skyclad episode because there was a there was a lot. Yes, so, there was. Uh, Joe Heber said, "I might have been, I might have seen Skyclad on MTV or heard them on the heavy college radio near us back then, but the vocals would have likely deterred me. Giving it a chance now, I dig some of the songs." Cardboard City is a highlight, as are some of the other uh, standouts that you guys mentioned. I think like the violin heavy. I, I think I like the violin heavy songs less. I find them distracting for some reason. Surprisingly heavy lyrics, and that was something we talked about. It's just how the lyrics are much heavier than weighty. Yeah, yeah. Oh, very weighty. That's a great <laughs> way to put it. Yes, very weighty. Um, Andy Larson said so. Right off the bat, I've got to say I'd never heard of this band, and what a great choice by Anthony because I came to really adore this record. Thematically, I kept thinking it sounded like the soundtrack to some imaginary 80s Alan Moore comic, <laughs> he said, uh, <laughs> which I could totally see. He says, tells you a lot about 80s Alan Moore comics. Yeah, he said, uh, sonically, it's a difficult album for me to pin down. I hear the odd snatch of Maiden here or there, like Brian says, but it's more punky to my ears than anything, surely down to the barked, almost military cadence vocal style. I'm oddly reminded of a Dutch punk group called The X. Uh, especially a pair of albums they recorded with the ch- with cellist Tom Cora. Similar themes, lots of politics in their writing. Uh, thanks once again. This was a great episode. Let's see what else. Kenneth White said, I'd only heard of Skyclad, and the description of them as folk metal had me running as far in the other direction as was possible. <laughs> My first listen was just, oh, this is Metal Levelers. Yeah, which is what I said, at the, uh, didn't I? Didn't I say that in the episode? That's the later albums, especially, really do sound like you know the levelers with heavier guitars. Yeah, uh, Lenny said this was tucked away in a musical blind spot for me, but very glad the podcast flagged it up. The guitar tone and the slower moments are a real precursor to a lot of my favorite melodic bands. Metal, uh, Womb of the Worm, in particular, musically could have been a Deftones or Torch track. 
This is an absolute revelation to me as I hadn't even heard Skyclad mentioned by bands of this ilk, but it seems as they should have been an inspiration. Uh, let's yeah, see. that's a, that's an interesting one. I've never Skyclad just almost never get mentioned as an influence uh, by bands. I, I almost never hear. I and mean, obviously, the band themselves are still going. But this era of Skyclad is a very distinct thing, and they're just not a band that pops up in the sort of conversation where people are talking influences. And I'm like, surely, surely. <laughs> There are bands out there who were influenced by them. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's odd. They just kind of disappeared from the conversation. Yeah. And uh, it's funny. I'm looking at some of the feedback here. The the whole folk metal label, I mean, to go back to, we just had this conversation about like what's metal and what's not metal. Boy, you put folk metal in front of something and that really dissuades people i think in a lot yeah. of cases from before they it even listen yeah, yeah, yeah totally yeah. which is why i mean if you need more proof as to why labels uh are not great what well, you just listen to the music uh phil said i'd heard of skyclad before but i had never heard any of their music nor have i delved into any quote-unquote folk metal uh he says you know what metal needs more violin and fiddle said no one ever sorry <laughs> <laughs> he said, uh, sorry, the violin fiddle just absolutely does not work to my ears. In many of the songs, it sounds like two different songs being played over each other. It just doesn't meld together to my ear and gives many of the songs a very disjointed feel. It should also be noted that my loathing of bluegrass and country and Western burns hotter than Kenneth White's hatred of Eddie Vedder, <laughs> which may explain <laughs> my reaction to this. So yeah, a lot of a lot of sort of visceral reactions to it. Uh, Jeff said, I had heard of Skyclad, but now... Uh, but now I have the, I'm the exact opposite of Phil. He said, I really like the fiddle work. I feel like it's not tacked on. It's integrated into the overall sound. However, I like a lot of stuff that melds the intensity of metal with other genres. For a modern example, see zeal and ardor, which combines a American folk tradition with metal. Oh, interesting. Um, never yeah, heard of them. The, the, the violin fiddle aspects really divided people. I noticed that. It, it does seem to be one of those things that people either go, oh, wow, yeah, interesting, or, oh, God, no, keep that out of my metal. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I totally, that is very clear from the comments that people put here. For me, if it, uh, as soon as I can picture uh, Dungeons and Dragons in my head, then it's all good. Like, I, I can't, uh, <laughs> like, anything that furthers that, like, is like, oh, okay, you can put whatever you want in it. Like, that's totally fine. Uh, Tortoise said, still going to listen to this podcast, so this is coming off a pure self-critique. I thought the album opened with a 10-ton hammer, let us know exactly what it wanted to be, and immediately ran from song to song in a hurry. I flipped it over immediately and went about it lyrically. So good. So he loved it. Um, Stuart said, Anthony, the instant you mentioned Skyclad were folk metal in the previous episode, I was thinking, because I've somehow missed you mentioning Martin uh, Valkyr, of the Levelers and Krusty's. Uh, yes, yeah, crust punk and the crusties. Yeah, that was so. Uh, I'll just. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, I'm no, go say, ahead. Especially in, I don't think crusties were ever really a thing in the states. So, for the benefit of our non-British listeners, crusties were a strange phenomenon in the sort of mostly in the late '80s, early to mid '90s in the UK of uh, a kind of a, almost a resurgence of hippies combined with traveller culture. Uh, and uh, basically, you know, sort of white people with dreadlocks and lots of ratty layered clothing and army surplus boots and that sort of thing, uh, sleeping on couches and traveling around the country, 
following bands like New Model Army and Skyclad, um, you know, with all of their possessions in a holdall. That's kind of, that's the epitome, if you like, of Krusty. Like the, the depiction on the front of the album, Prince of the Poverty Line, you know, is, is an archetypal Krusty figure. Um, which, yeah, as I say, didn't really travel outside of Britain, but I know that they were, Skyclad were, you know, sort of uh, had fans within those circles and they appealed yeah. to to those people. But it is such a weird specific sort of geographical phenomenon and it grew out partly of the crust punk movement which was kind of badly named because we would really think of crust punk as like death metal um but bands like discharge and motorhead even grew out of that uh and later you had bands like i've mentioned them before um greg mcintosh's side project valenfire was a crust punk project a sort of throwback crust punk thing and of course you listen to that now and it's basically just death metal but at the time I don't think death metal, the label existed, and so everybody called it crusty punk yeah. for some reason. So it's if anybody's sort of interested in that side of it, go and look back at bands like Discharge and that kind of movement in the 80s, early to mid-80s, and that became the crusty movement, if you like, in the late 80s and 90s. It's all very strange and uh, a bit confusing, but some interesting music and sort of culture came out of that. Uh, Daniel said, wow, my first thought of, of, on the first song was, wow, this really reminds me of Queensryche. So, so you got your, uh, which I will say, <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it during the show. I know that's our drinking game when we talk about Queensryche here or Megadeth, but uh, I definitely got some Queensryche vibes off of that Skyclad album for sure. Did you? Yeah, for sure. Well, in, in the in the lyrics or musically? Just musically, because especially like warning era Queensryche uh, like early, like Queens, early Queens, right? To me, always conjured images of sci-fi, you know, eighties, particularly like late seventies, eighties sci-fi sort of feel to it. And I think their album covers, especially the cover for the warning, has this sort of cosmic tarot card feel to it. You know what I mean? Right. Um, which conjures some of that. And I definitely got some of those vibes from Skyclad. Not so much in a cosmic sense but in a medieval sense but i saw the the sort of uh other side of the coin if you will it's a very thin line be- between bands that sort of you know do sci-fi concept albums or a dragon's fan and fantasy concept album. Sure. i mean th- there's not a lot of <laughs> separation there let's be honest <laughs> and then you have spell jammer which is the greatest peanut butter and jelly sandwich of all that <laughs> stuff in the history of the world which i have three box sets of on my shelf over oh here. man yeah, deep we cut. Could, yeah, deep cut there. Uh, I even have the novel series because one of the worlds that they went to was a Dragonlance world, which was my favorite setting of all time. Oh man! I, I have the six, uh, the six novel set, I think, of Spelljammer. Uh, anyways, there, that's a little. Now you can add from Queensrÿche to Megadeth to D and D. You can add that to your uh, to your drinking game as well. Uh, the rest of the answers uh, again. Scott Hall violins were not for for him. That kind of took him out of the music. Uh, Franzel said, I've never heard of the band until now, but now I'm a fan. Love me some folk metal, especially when it's not the typical black metal-based folk metal. So I think overall, I mean, the discussions were sort of on both sides of that line. The folk, the folk metal thing either really uh, made it difficult for people to get into, or that was a selling point for them, which is not not too surprising. No, not, not surprising at all. Uh, I mean, even in the 90s, you know, there were people who just couldn't get over the violins in Skyclad. Um, you know, I, I just didn't have a problem with it, but that's possibly partly to do with having already been into bands like um, My Dying Bride, who, of course, you know, use the violin in a very different way, 
but the idea of putting a violin to really heavy metal music, you know, sort of was already there. Um, and also, frankly, being from a sort of semi-Celtic background and just, it's not like I grew up with, you know, my grandparents sure. playing fiddle in the front room or anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I have been to pubs where there were, you know, there's a skiffle band in the corner with a violin yeah. and a washboard. And, so, you know, it's it happens. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's never really been my kind of thing. But at the same time, it's never been something that strikes me as unusual. Um, so maybe that's got something to do with it. I don't know. The last shout out I'm going to get from the Facebook group is CJ actually posted a picture of his Prince of the Poverty Line t-shirt on our Facebook thread. Oh, yeah, thread. yeah, yeah. He said, I found my old Prince of the Poverty Line t-shirt. Uh, I misremembered, though. It doesn't have the tour dates on the back, just the members' names. But pretty cool. Right, you can go check right, out that yeah. pic in the uh, Facebook thread. So as always, awesome discussion coming out of the episode for... Uh, for anyone who wants to go to that Facebook group and check it out, man, if you want to talk about music, it's on 24-7 there. It really is. It really is. And a reminder to people, obviously, that uh, that group is at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, but anybody can join. You do not need to be a patron to join the Facebook group. Uh, just, you know, sort of click the button to join and we'll approve you. Uh, no problem. On the other hand, if you do want to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash thrash it out, um, and, uh, show us your support and we would be very grateful indeed. Well, and I will also remind people that if you go on Redbubble, the thrash it out t-shirts are there. We never uh, talk about them. I always forget about the t-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> but what, again, the thing that I like about Redbubble, and I was talking with someone about this the other day, I love that they allow you to choose different colors and also yep. different materials. So if you are the person who likes more of that custom fit, you can get that on the Redbubble page. Or if you are like me and you just like the generic uh, tour t-shirt quality shirts, you can get that as well, which is really nice. So yeah, I have, uh, I've got two thrash it out shirts now that I wear regularly. And, <laughs> uh, and by and the way, uh, props to thought bubble uh, to thought bubble. Sorry. Thought bubble is a comic on one. <laughs> hey, prop, you know what though? Props to them. <laughs> That's a great props show. Props to them too. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No pro props to Red Bull because things like that choice of materials and you know, all that stuff that you were just talking about is entirely done by them. Like it's not, that's not something that we have to spend time right. doing when we set up the store or anything. All we say is this design, make it available on t-shirts, hoodies, you know, these, you pick the products and then things like, yeah, the choice of materials that you were talking about, the choice of colors, that's all down to Redbubble. So, you know, props to them for making it really, really easy for people like us who have neither the time nor inclination nor, frankly, probably knowledge to set up a really complex store for people can just put a design on there for a T-shirt and go, hey, there you go, you can buy a T-shirt design uh, and make it really, really easy. So, you know, that's good. Yeah, so you can put throw your uh, goblin horns up on whatever background you want. <laughs> goblin thrush. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right, all right. So let's talk about this album, which is most definitely not goblin thrush. Uh, it is, as we said, a sort of um, crossover... Well, yeah, I suppose you could call it crossover. Uh, heavy rock, fuzzy, almost stoner rock in places, but then doomy in some places as well, album. Um, so, I mean, we'll talk about the the album, the tracks individually, obviously, but I, just overall, I'm really interested because you'd never heard it before, and you said you might have heard one or two tracks by them, but not the whole album. So what was your like first impression? Well, I'm going to give you this impression by talking about another band that will either make people hate me or um, or it will click with them. So when I heard the album from The Pretty Reckless, Going to Hell, I don't know if you've listened to that album. No, but, I don't know. But uh, 
I loved it. I just fell in love with this album. And it, there's a lot of elements of that album that I think are very present on this album here. Uh, just like really heavy in places, but very emotional, very, um, very sort of raw. And the Pretty Reckless released a another album, I think, in 2016. And I was really hoping that this sound that we get here on this Royal Thunder album was where they were going. And in fact, like we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, they went in the other direction. They went in the softer, more mainstream, um, more radio-friendly sort of direction. And I really, uh, they became sort of a one-hit wonder for me. That one album of theirs is an album that I will go back to, but overall, I'm not a fan of the other stuff that they're doing. And so the first reaction that I had when I listened to this album for the first time is like, this is what I wanted the next album from the Pretty Reckless to sound like. I wanted them to right. go one step deeper into that area that they were going into. And I freaking love it. There is so much about this album that I think reveals itself on repeated listens and patterns that you start to see and ebbs and flows that uh, are just sort of repeated here and there, but not in a way that I think makes all the sound, the songs sound samey just in a, in sort of a, uh, emotional ebb and flow kind of way. And I really like that. I mean, uh, Melanie Parsons vocals are just, as you said before, like a force, they're just a force to be reckoned with. They're, they're just, they're, they're raw. They are to me, they sound so much like, uh, it's like Janis Joplin. You know, well, like I, I right, I was just going to say, do you, will it surprise you to learn that Janis Joplin apparently is a big influence on her? No, I mean, yeah. my God, but I also Courtney Love. I throw Courtney Love in there oh, too. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Like just in terms of raw emotion, I think from a from a vocal style, if if Melanie sang a song from Janis Joplin, she would probably sound very eerily similar to her. I'm sure she can just absolutely nail that. Um, but yeah, a lot of, uh, I throw Joan Jett in there too. Like I, I definitely feel like she's got a great mix of, um, inspirations or, or parts of her vocal stylings that remind me of other amazing female vocalists from the past. But yeah, I definitely, Janis Joplin was the one that just sort of jumped to the forefront of me. And so when you have that, and then you put this sort of doomy, as you mentioned, sometimes like stoner, Metal, which I'm not a huge fan of stoner metal, but I don't think that they fall off a cliff into that genre too right, much. Right, they don't in go too far into psychedelia. Yeah, yeah. So, but and and so it to me like they they walk those lines very well without completely going over to the other side of any of them. Like there's very doomy parts of this album, but they're not a doom metal band. You know, like there's so I, I just like I like how they've combined those elements. Um, there are there's a lot of Nirvana and Soundgarden in there for me yes. as I listen to this, um, but overall it's super raw, it's very uh, emotionally heavy, and it's an album that it's I didn't look at the run t- it's over an hour isn't it around an hour it's just just over an hour sixty three yeah. minutes yeah I mean it's an album you can live in for a little while right I mean this is not a quick listen this is and, well, and some I of think the- it. It's an album that makes you live in it for a while as well. Yeah. If you listen to this all the way through, it does kind of, it feels longer than it is. And you can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing. Right. I was actually, when I looked at the runtime, I was actually surprised that it was only 63 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it to me, from an emotional standpoint, like you're going through something 
like from yeah. start to finish in yeah, this yeah. in this album. There's a lot of sort of working through past pain and current right. pain, you know, on this album. And uh, I found it actually to be very creatively inspirational. Like this is an album that I can't write to a lot of albums that have lyrics because I tend to get lost in the wor- the words like derail me. So I listen to a lot of instrumental stuff when I write. But this album in particular, I think because it has this sort of drawn out pace to it, I was okay with just having on when I was um, writing and things like yeah, that. Interesting. And from yeah. an emotional standpoint, definitely, uh, I I found a lot of inspiration in there. So yeah, well, it fits with the sort of fiction that you write, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, definitely, and, and definitely certain stories for sure. And so um, I liked it. I like this was this was definitely an album that plays to my musical sensibilities, which is I like to listen to the whole album. I like to put aside some time and I like to be in that album for a while. And this album invites that. And I like that. That's funny because it sounds like you actually like this album more than me then, which is, you know, considering I'm the one who had it <laughs> before. Um, yeah. I, I don't recall where I even first discovered Royal Thunder. I, I genuinely cannot remember how I came across them. I, I don't think it was on the TV because they're not really the sort of band, you know, that gets on your late night music shows. Um, maybe it was like band camp suggestions or something. I, I just don't remember. Um, but I heard the first few tracks on the album and I was like, that's it. And, and bought it straight away. But unlike you, I, am. I don't think there are any bad songs on this album, but I would, if I was producing it, I would, either cut a couple or ask them to sort of trim down or take another pass at a few of the later tracks. The first half of the album, I think, is superb. The second half, I often don't bother listening to. Uh, I remember that when I went back to it. It's been a while since I listened to it, and I uh, went back to it, obviously, to start listening and getting prepped for the show, and got to about track six, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is about where I start to tune out. That's why I don't listen to this album all that much. Um, so, but it's been interesting for me as a result to make myself, you know, sort of focus on those tracks that I don't know as well. Yeah, um, and listen to them, uh, you know, over and over again. I so, do. I do feel like they, uh, the front and back side of this album, are very different. Not uh, maybe are, not yeah. very, but yeah, they're different in in maybe not in sense of uh, theme or anything, but in certain certainly in sense of like song structure. I yeah, feel like they're different. And so. the way they sound and yeah, sort of yeah. maybe even what they're trying to do with them. Um, just going back to what you said about sort of influences on Melanie Parsons, I, I, I agree with everything that you said. And I, I find it, doesn't she sort of remind you of those people because she's in that same tradition of, for want of a better description, scuzzy female singers. Who don't uh, give a I, fuck, right? Who just right, uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. And I don't mean that as a pejorative at all. Yeah, I mean that tradition of singers like Janis Joplin and Joan Jett and Courtney Love, who just like I don't fucking care, right? You know, I I'm not here for you. I'm <laughs> right. not here to make you want to fuck me or anything. I am here as an artist, which and you know as a singer, and we're in a band, and I work harder than you. Fuck off. I have to tell you, I don't know if we've talked about it on the show. That is literally my favorite quality in a creator of any kind. That ability to create for yourself and to not care what other people expect from it or receive it. Uh, it probably wouldn't surprise you to know that David Lynch is one of my favorite 
you right, know, yeah. creators of all time. But Don Coscarelli, who did the Phantasm series, like people who they have a story to tell or a thing to get out, and they're going to do that in the way that they want to, and how what you want from it, or what you expect from it, or what uh, box it fits into is irrelevant to them. And right. I love that. I yeah, just that whole absolutely thing of like, love look, that. If, if you like it, that's wonderful, but I am not going to change it to make you like it. No, this was a thing I had to get out. This was a thing I had to make. And you, great. If you get something from that, that's awesome. That's like a bonus, but it's not, it's not for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's for me. And yep. it's a thing that I needed to will into existence. And you either take it as it is, or you take what you want from it. Um, but that's not going to affect the next thing that I do either. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I'm in total agreement with you. Um, also talking about labels, I found a thing where apparently the, their original drummer described their sound as post-apocalyptic blues. I will accept that. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I want to say though, you mentioned influences and I, so I did pull a couple of interviews with Melanie um, some from a few years ago, some from more recently, where she did talk about some of those influences. So uh, let's see, who were the artists? This was from a uh, on culturated.com. Who were the artists that inspired your early interest in being a singer-songwriter? She said, when I heard Nirvana, it resonated with my soul. I, uh, it, you know, I was a rebellious, weird, pissed off troublemaker. There was something about Nirvana that I could relate to. Of course, I had to bleach my hair, dye it bright red, buy a fuzzy green cardigan, and start a band. It was an awful band uh, called Conniption Fit. That was the name of her, <laughs> that her early band. But she also has talked about other influences. You know, uh, in Classic Rock Magazine, this was from this year. Uh, which band was it that made you want to be a, be in a band yourself? She said, hands down, Nirvana and bands like Faith No More, Megadeth, and Metallica. People like James Hetfield, Dave Mustaine, and Mike Patton, they were doing things I'd never heard, so creative and colorful. I don't, I didn't know the human voice could do that. And yeah. so uh, you don't usually hear uh, Dave Mustaine's vocals uh, praised at all, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take that, even though she was probably talking more about Hetfield than Mike Patton. But um <laughs> But yeah, you I mean, do it, hear that a lot about Mike Patton. I mean, I, I'm not as big a Mike Patton fan as some people, same. but the things that that man can do with his voice are just unreal. Yeah, and if that's what you come to their music for, like you get that. I mean, that that's that's what they deliver. So um, yeah, so just a couple of things. So clearly Nirvana, right? Um, and then, then some also, of the heavy stuff yeah, that we grew Metallica up with. and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, there was, I, I, like you, obviously, I sort of looked up, uh, you know, interviews with the band and what have you. What I found interesting uh, about this band was that there's, they're quite tight-lipped about quite a lot of stuff. Like, uh -huh. almost all the interviews I could find were basically just with Melanie. I, the, almost nothing, almost nobody seems to want to speak to, or he doesn't want to speak to the, to the journalist with Josh Weaver, who writes all the music, but, you know, just isn't they always either she steps forward or they push her forward to be the spokesperson for the band. But then she is notoriously ambiguous about everything. Like I she have examples. <laughs> she do, yeah. She doesn't talk much about the meaning behind songs. She un, quite understandably, and we'll talk about this in a moment. She doesn't want to talk much about personal stuff or her personal history in too much detail. Right. Um, She's, I mean, she's clearly articulate and smart, uh, but she just doesn't want to tell people too much, which makes it really, you know, sort of interesting kind of interviews where she's 
almost like a motivational speaker. She's saying lots of things, but she's not revealing anything of depth in them. For sure, other, right? Other than, I just want to do what I want to do, and I'm going to keep on doing it, and I don't care whether you like it or not, which is wonderful, but there's only so many ways you can say that. <laughs> you know? Well, and I feel like, too, and I haven't read enough of interviews with her, but you know, you're a freaking musician. You want people to talk to you about the music, right? You want people to talk about like what, what you're creating. And so often because of some of the stuff in her history, people want to, they want to go right to the TMZ stuff. You know what I mean? And I would imagine that that's incredibly frustrating when you are pouring your heart and soul into the music that you create and people want to talk about the gossip that inspired it, you know, and, and stuff like that. And so, um, without first, giving credence and credit to the music itself. And so my guess would be that she has even less patience for that when people just want to kind of get to the sensationalized part of her, of her history and what they think might be, be behind some of these songs. But you're right. I mean, she's, um, I'll give you an example. A question came to her. You're still in Royal Thunder with your ex-husband, Josh. How does that relationship work? Um, her first, uh, thing is we've never been able to explain it. It's the strangest thing. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we should be completely ripped apart. We should be over and done with. He's someone who came into my life when I was a teenager and we had our connection. Um, she goes on to say, we were meant to do this together. So I, I saw a few interviews where she said that way. They seem to have this. And yeah, for people who don't realize they were married uh, before they started the band, I think. Um, uh, and then because he started the band by himself. And, th- and I think they were already married. And then he said, why don't you come in and sing and play bass? Um, it's again, they don't talk about this stuff much. So trying to actually pin down (laughs) a timeline for these things is difficult. But then yeah, after this first album, they divorced. The second album is basically about their divorce. Um, and yet they're still working and writing together. And by all accounts, you know, from what I could see are both still happy doing that, which is unusual. Uh, and she does describe it in a couple of places I saw as like, this is just, we don't know any other way to be. No, and what I what I like about what I've read of her and certainly from her music is that this stuff is her therapy. You know, like the oh, the, yeah. Yeah, the yeah. music is like for I think for a lot of creative people that is true to varying degrees that that is that is their therapy and you can see that happening with these songs. And so I appreciate that, you know, she's kind of left it all in the lyrics of the songs and people can take what they need out of that to, to right. be constantly questioned about like, what is the meaning of this? I mean, for, for those that did not delve into the history of this band, uh, they, her and her husband were part of a church that they have gone on to talk about was very cult like. And they kind of, had their time with that church and and went through some stuff and then got away from it. And so some of what they talk about and sing about, you know, is certainly informed by that. But there, there's been a lot of digging into what that specifically is. And even in those interviews where she talks about um, those things, there's they're not talking, they're not saying people's names, they're not revealing people's identities, they're not talking specifically about what church it is and stuff like that, which um, goes to what you were saying about, you know, trying to be ambiguous about stuff. But there, there is a piece that I thought was very interesting when she talked about um, sort of things that she learned there. She was a worship leader at this particular church, and the head worship leader, she, she was saying, um, because someone asked her, how did your membership in this church affect your music? She said, the head worship leader trained me 
and this is messed up. I can't even believe I'm remembering this part. She said, he had trained me to never sing really well. And he said, you should never do your best and sound really good because you'll distract people from the Lord and being able to worship God. Which is just so fucked up, isn't it? Isn't that so fucked up? Bizarre. Bizarre. Um, She said, now I have a hard time putting a cap on myself. When I sing soft, soft, gentle stuff, it's hard for me to pull back. Um, which you could completely see in in here in everything oh, yeah. that yeah, she yeah. does is that it is it is unleashed, you know. Um, the well, just- and she is she's said specifically talking about the cult thing. She has actually said uh, in one of the interviews I read that this whole album is basically about that. It's about getting all. It's a catharsis. It's about getting all of that and her experience uh, in that cult out, you know, and sort of trying to deal with it that way. Now. Uh, you know, having obviously knowing the lyrics, I'm not sure whether necessarily every song is literally specifically about something right. that happened in that, but the album as a whole is, yeah, that release of like, got to get, you know, something out to deal with all this yeah. weird shit in her life. And I, and I think in her life is the, is the, the piece there, because I, to, to me, I read this album as everything that's happened to her in her life, inclusive of the cult situation, but also her previous life with her family is yeah. stuff that's getting dealt with through this album. So it is, it, it's, it feels like a, uh, sort of a milestone moment, sort of a thing where you are dealing with the past in order to be able to move on. Um, yeah. I definitely feel like that's a theme that runs through this album. And on the first song, there's actually a, a clip from another uh, interview that I'll talk about when we get there, but yeah, you're right. I mean, to go back to what you said, not a lot of specific details given out in a lot of the interviews that she does, even though everyone seems to want to go there, you know, in the interview that she has, which man is just, it's gotta be it's tiresome, gotta be right? Yeah, it's yeah. gotta be tiresome. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as uh, you, as someone who gets interviewed a lot, me as someone who has interviewed a lot of people, like you, you tend to, it's just like, if you, whatever you make or have done, you, you look at how it's done by other people. Right. But I, I, that, that always makes me cringe. Um, yeah, when it's people... well, and you get you know you used you get used to getting the same questions over yeah. and over again, but when it's a question that you don't want to answer, that's yeah, that it really is exhausting. And I have wondered, uh, and again, this is just speculation, but I have wondered if part of the reason why the band's still going despite them being divorced uh, and they're able to still work together is partly because of having gone through that experience together. You know, a bit like. The, the whole kind of like, you know, band of brothers forged in fire, oh, you know, people absolutely. who've been through combat together are, you know, just like friends for life because you've been through something together that nobody else could ever experience. Right. Um, and I have wondered if that's kind of part of why their connection is so strong that they can get divorced and yet still continue apparently quite happily making music together. Well, that and the fact that they refuse to air each other's dirty laundry, right? So, it, so it, yep. it's that, yep. you know, surviving something, but having the respect for your partner and for uh, the rest of your band that you're not going to put names to everything. You're not going to spill all the sordid details of everything because no matter how elegantly you try to do that, it's never going to be received that way no. by the other people that you're talking about. It just no. isn't. And so the smart move is to do exactly what she does, which is not and to just not talk about yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. Not to yeah. indulge to, to, you know, or to touch on themes, but not get into specifics and stuff like that. So, yeah. uh, yeah, so, uh, th- that's something that I, 
absolutely know firsthand myself, you know, and obviously in a much, much smaller, you know, sort of less traumatic scale, but just, yeah, you know, there are some things that people want to ask you about, that interviewers and press and whatever you want to ask you about, that you think there is no way I can say this that won't be twisted, you know, that won't be pounced upon, that won't be misinterpreted. And so you just, you just don't talk about it, you know, and you figure, look, the people who matter know, you know, the people who need to know, they already know. Right. Uh, You know, nothing is, could possibly be gained by getting this out into the public domain. And so, yeah, you do just, just kind of go, right, well, I'm, I'm just not going to mention it. I'm not going to talk about it. And if I get asked about it, I will, uh, you know, sort of plead the fifth uh, or just play, plead ignorance or whatever, because, yeah, sometimes it just ain't worth it. And the thing is, too, like, and I know this is becoming a discussion about sort of creativity and, <laughs> and sort of what goes into it, but, you know, uh, there there is a piece of the creator in everything that they put out into the world, right? And so, yep. y- you know, whether you think about it deeply or not, when you're reading a story or listening to a song or, um, or you know, watching a movie or whatever, but you are getting to know that person in some ways that you probably don't even realize in a more intimate way than maybe people close to them know them. And so it's just interesting to me that, um, you know, people want to process that out when they, when they interview people. But yeah, I mean that that's no no matter what it is that you're consuming that someone else created, there is a piece of them in that. And you are learning something about them, whether it's just their particular view of the world, whether it's something that truly happened to them, whether it's a place for something as simple as a lot of my stories feature, places that I spent a lot of time as in my formative years that are very dear to me that I want to immortalize. And so I'm putting them into a story, maybe under a different name, maybe under a different, but maybe, maybe it's the diner that I used to get omelets at when I was a kid, when my father would take me on Sunday mornings to, uh, to go out to breakfast with him. And so that diner or an approximation of it ends up in my stories because that's a place that I want to revisit in my head when I'm writing or something like that. So but isn't yeah. that the amusing thing that nobody would ever, pr- probably nobody would read one of your stories and th- and think that, and instead what they do, people often make the mistake of like, you'll have a character say something and they think that that must be what you believe. Right. I get that yeah. all the time. And you know, by no means myself alone, you know, writers in general get that all the time. We'll have a character say something and people think that that's what we believe. And we're like, no. No, it's a character. And yet there is stuff in there, like you say, like things like locations or, you know, it could just be about family relationships or whatever. There is stuff in there that is personal to us, but it's not, it's often not what people think. <laughs> right. It's often not the things that people focus on. But the other right. thing too is like yeah. a lot of times you'll, you'll be reading something or you'll listen to a song and something will emotionally resonate with you. And sometimes you don't even know why. Oh, and it yeah. may be yeah, because yeah. of what that person was putting into that work that caught you in that way even though you weren't looking for it and you don't even really understand why it resonated with you. But uh, to me, those are like the happiest things, even if it's a sad thing that resonates with me, but it's like when you, when you're able to uh, have that emotional connection with a creator who, with something that means something to you, it's a, it's well, great. So. And when you know, it means something to them as well. Absolutely. Right. Cause yeah, you, that, cause, that's... cause that's why it's there because they exactly. were working through that or they were going through that. And and, you know, to to bring it all the way back to this album that we're talking about, like, I, I can't believe that anyone would go through this entire album without 
finding some emotional resonance somewhere in here, unless you somewhere have led a life it, yeah. where you pretty much not. The, the entire spectrum of human emotion yes. is in here. <laughs> yes, I mean, unless you've had a charmed life from start to finish, uh, I can only imagine that that some of these songs and some of these passages are are going to hit you and sometimes hit you pretty tough. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the album specifically then. So this is uh, was released in 2012, as you say, that was their debut album. Uh, 10 songs, 63 minutes, which gives you an idea of like the average runtime. Uh, and some of them are indeed almost 10 minutes long uh, to compensate for some smaller ones. Um, and like I said, you know, that's something you, you, we'll get into it with the individual tracks. I personally think it could have been stood, stood to be a, a little bit shorter, but... You know, on the other hand, 63 minutes these days, especially, is not too long uh, as a right. whole running length for an album. You know, like albums, much like movies, have gotten longer and longer as the years go on. Uh, and there are plenty of albums out there that are 70 or 80 minutes these days. So, yeah, you know, it's not overly long. Um, and it's produced by somebody called Joey Jones, who I am not really familiar with at all, but I looked him up. And he's basically continued to produce all of Royal Thunder's albums. Um, he's engineered a few other albums that I've by bands I've never heard of, and then uh, his most recent one was he produced uh, the album Venomous Depths by Cloak. Uh, sorry, Two Venomous Depths by Cloak, which is uh, and I I hadn't heard it. I'd heard of Cloak, but I'd never heard the album. I went and had a listen to it. It is definitely metal. Though, like, there's no question that that is a metal album. Uh, in fact, I actually quite enjoyed it. <laughs> I may well end up picking that up. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So. So yeah, who is this guy? Like it's weird. Just he just produces this one band. It's really weird that it to me that because Royal Thunder did break onto the scene with this album had quite a bit of impact. You know, they made a bit of a splash. Uh, they were being talked about a lot, and then uh, yeah, and yet their producer. You'd think people would go to their producer and go, "Oh, come and do this album," and yet he hasn't. You know, he didn't even produce another band until like four years later. Huh. Yeah, really weird. <laughs> I don't well, know, maybe he certainly he's got a day brings. <laughs> yeah, maybe he does, right? Or and and this was the band that he sort of came up with and and figured out his, uh, you know, got his chops with. But he, what he delivers and what they deliver on this album is a very raw feel. It is, but it's and we talked about the sort of you know the kind of quasi stoner rock, uh, you know, sort of fuzzy feel. But at the same time, it's clear. Like it is very, very. The, it's the not tone, muddy, the, right? Exactly. Yeah. The sonic clarity is quite for a debut album that presumably was not made for an awful lot of money. It's actually quite impressive. Yeah, agreed. All right, so let's get into the specific album tracks then. So let's start with track one, Parsons Curse. Yeah. 
I mean, when you name the song after your family (laughs) and put the word curse in it, I think you're talking about some family stuff that you've sort of been through. (laughs) Uh, And you can certainly, you know, see that from the lyrics here. I'll give you the piece that she spoke about in an interview because someone asked her like, hey, this song's pretty freaking emotionally heavy. Like, can you tell us a little bit what's behind it? And of course, her first sentence is, I don't want to go into detail because it's part of where my family comes from and part of what my family's going through. Um, but then she does reveal a little bit. She said, I will say that there's something in my family that's been passed down the generations that I've seen a lot of relatives that I've seen in a lot of relatives on my dad's side. It's kind of trickled down and fell on a lot of people. Uh, it's one of those things. Every generation, it hits someone in my family. I've always seen it because I feel like I'm a very discerning person. I can sense a lot of that stuff, particularly it's something that I've seen in my dad. So uh, she said it's it's about that and what my family had to go through watching that. And that's the most I've ever told anybody. I've never been specific about a family member, but that's a person that I had in mind when I was writing the song. It's more of a song to my mother walking her through it. Interesting. Yes. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that that could be, and let's not speculate, but I mean, you certainly get that. You abs- I mean, there's, there's, there's some quite direct lyrics in here, like, oh, mother, don't you cry, this thing will pass us by. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, there are then also some very, very ambiguous lyrics. Uh, you know, this curse is following me. I will break it, setting us free. I know just where we're going. I mean, that could mean anything. It's so, yeah. you know, that is very ambiguous. Uh, but they are powerful lyrics very absolutely. powerful and she belts them this is that this is i think this may have been the first track of theirs that i heard um and i mean it, it does have a fairly doomy start to it and she immediately just launches into hollering you know at the top of her lungs uh with like random yells going on in the background as well it's a real powerful opener yeah uh, uh, but an interesting choice for an opener i don't I don't know. I can't, I haven't decided about whether I like this song as the opener or not of this album. Um, having I, I listened think the, to the problem with it is that it doesn't, it doesn't, it falsely sets up what you should expect from the rest of the I album. I think that's part of it. And I, yeah. And I also think just the, uh, yeah, I just, ha- I'm not convinced that this was the best song to open the album, but it's also not so different from everything else that it doesn't fit with the album. And so I, I struggle with that. So I guess in the end, maybe it wasn't the best one to open with because I have conflicting sort of feelings about, but the, what they do in this song that is certainly uh, repeated over and over again throughout the album is this idea of the build where they're building up, oh, yeah. where yeah, they're yeah. sort of meandering to begin with. And then, Things start to coalesce, and then boom. Uh, and then there are times in this song, and this happens throughout the album as well, where they just build a wall of sound, just the yes. absolute wall of sound. Where that's it, in my notes for this track. Yeah, towards the end, it gets real, which is actually where it gets like the closest to sort of stoner and psych rock. Yeah, I, think, I would agree. Where you with get that. that wall of noise, cymbals crashing everywhere, and then the whole song actually crashes out in feedback and slows down, ends with feedback. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, like I said, I think it's a great track, but and I don't think it's a bad one to open. My only issue with it, as I say, yeah, is that it doesn't, it kind of, it gives you false expectations. If the rest right. of the album was all like this, 
I would like the album as a whole a lot more than I do. I think if you know if if oh if, interesting you know okay I mean. yeah yeah no I know exactly what you mean because um, I do think this is a great track and like I say a great opener as well but maybe f- not for this album. <laughs> well, and it's seven minutes, right? I mean, so seven minutes long to open your album is a lot to ask of a listener. And I wonder, I mean, on the other hand, you're either in or you're out by the end of this song. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? yeah like you're, right. Yeah. You've either, you're either on board or you've decided that this is not for you where. Well, and it is groovy as well. That's the other thing. It's not like the song sure. drags, you know, it's yes, it's seven minutes, but it doesn't drag at any point, even though it's got, you know, even the slow bits are still pretty groovy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and j- those parts where it comes together for like with that wall of sound, you know, at, at two specific points during the song, like one in sort of the first third of the song and then one towards the end is just huge. So to me, like that, those are the two things. And that's where I could kind of get this feeling from their music that it's very sort of tidal where it's sort of the the tide rolls in and the waves crash in and then it kind of goes back out and then it just has this sort of ebb and flow feel to a lot of the songs that I I really ended up liking it. That's an interesting way of putting it cuz I mean they're from Georgia so they're not, you know, it's not like they live on the coast or anything. Um but that is an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, of like like a tidal wave of sound and emotion. Yeah. Uh, all coming at you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as I say, it ends on a, like a whale of feedback and then goes straight into track two, which is Whispering World. This is probably my favorite track on the album. I think it might be mine too. I'm not sure if it was a single, but it feels like it could have been or should have been. I mean, it's a straight up rocker. Uh, no question. It's much faster tempo than the previous track. And it's really groovy. Like what a great riff. Um, and Melanie's vocal rhythm works really well on top of it as well. It's uh, yeah, it's just a really great track. I get I everything that you just said I completely agree with. I love the sort of simple opening, but again it, it you feel like it's the start of something, you feel that build right from the beginning. Um the sort of dreamier parts of it I think are really good because they contrast when it really comes in and crashes heavy. And that riff almost is a little Judas Priesty to me. Oh. Um when they get into that main riff, but this is again at, at like 3 minutes and 49 seconds. This might have been my opening song. You know, right. this this might have been, even though I would say that this song is not really indicative of what the rest of the album is going to be like, 
it it grabs you you know it, um, it really does yeah well and lyric wise i mean here's the is the funny thing you look at if you look at the lyrics i'm looking at them on dart lyrics now like this song has half as many lyrics again as the previous song and yet it's less than half the length <laughs> right there's a lot in here um and i mean this is another one Th- this is one of the songs that i assume is definitely about the cult you know i don't know that for sure but reading the lyrics i'm like this because when i first heard it i remember thinking that it was about an abusive lover yeah um which I mean, it could still be. Sure. But now that I also know about the background with the cult and everything, I'm looking at it again and thinking, ah, actually, this could be about the cult leader or something. Um, and I also mm. like that those lyrics and that and that's a perfect example of it are open enough to interpretation that they're getting at the feelings that someone is dealing with as they're going through this stuff without being so specific that you can't have that be your experience as well. Right. It makes them much more relatable. I agree. Correct. Yes. It's much more universal. And yeah. I mean, when you get to like the middle eight, uh, when she's screaming, you lie, you cheat, you steal, you hurt. There, that, I mean, maybe she's just a really good actor. I don't know. But that the way she delivers that sounds like somebody with a lot of pain inside, just expelling all this, yeah. like I say, catharsis, all of this frustration and pain and emotion and just, you know, absolutely belting it all out there. It's fantastic. Which to me is metal. Like that is, oh, agreed. Yeah, that yeah, yeah. to me is what the core of it, it for anyways, for me, metal is very cathartic. It's that cathartic. It's the, it's the getting all the bad stuff out so that you can move forward. And that is what music has always sort of, it, it allows me to deal with emotions and deal with, um whatever's going on in a way that i can it's therapeutic it helps me sort of move forward and so like when i when i hear her delivery and i hear the way that it combines with some of the crashes of the music like it's super heavy like it's heavy on multiple levels and it's the aggression as well i can't i can't did we talk about this on the last episode or have we talked about it in facebook or something i can't remember but i've as a general rule of thumb, and obviously there are exceptions to this, of course, but as a general rule of thumb, my sort of divider between uh, pop and rock is that pop is generally, even when it can, you know, it, it can be sad. Sure, it doesn't have to be happy, but it's generally kind of, it's just not aggressive. You know, it's generally sort of uh, more positive um, uh-huh. about human nature, <laughs> if you like. And whereas rock and especially metal obviously but rock music in general is generally aggressive in its tone you know it has more of a sort of aggressive fuck you kind of feeling to it that most pop music doesn't have um and and so yeah something like this that has and yet it is mournful in places and she clearly is feeling a bit sorry for herself you know in some parts of this album but at the same time there is so much aggression behind it behind that catharsis that that's what really appeals to me about that that sort of side of the equation um i just find that really appealing and it's part of what i love about rock and metal music not that i don't love pop as well but for very different reasons whereas rock and metal aggression is really what i'm looking for most of the time Mm -hmm. and this album delivers it in spades oh definitely yeah um So uh, track three is Shake and Shift.
which is another long i mean this is this the longest one in the album at nine minutes and 13 it, seconds it's not the longest it's the second longest it's okay. <laughs> second <laughs> but even so yes it's just over nine minutes yeah that is that's a long track i mean i really like this song uh, for a few reasons this sort of siren foghorn feeling in the, I guess it makes me think a lot of the ocean for whatever reason. Like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know the sea that this album makes me think of, but it, no, I, I, I can it, hear that because it's almost like, cause you've got the delay pedal intro, which goes on for quite some time and it's almost like a bell tolling on the ocean or something, isn't it? Yes. And then at like a minute and 25, just doom. Like doom, doomy, doom, oh, doom. It, it is very doomy, isn't it? Yeah, that, that main riff. I mean, it's, well, it's the chorus riff, really. That's, but it is very, very strong, and yeah, quite doomy. Yeah, just like uh, there's, and, and this this whole song feels very doomy to me, and because it's nine minutes and change long, it definitely has those ebbs and flows that I talked about before, where it sort of goes out and it comes back in. Um, there are parts of it that are just super crunchy heavy, but the whole song in and of itself is almost like a microcosm of this album, which is this journey that this person is going through and, um, you know, surviving something and coming out the other side of something. And man, there's a lot of lyrics to this song. Yeah. Well, and the, the talking about, yes, yeah, surviving things, the, the chorus, you've got to walk through this, your body shakes and, and shifts. You know, that's, yeah, it's exactly about surviving, getting through to the other side and surviving. Um, musically, there's a couple of nice little touches in this. I love how, uh, the drums, and I think this might only happen on the first chorus or something. I'm not, I can't quite recall now, but the drums kind of hold the riff for a line before it starts properly into the chorus. That's just, just a nice little touch that builds that anticipation. Um, you've got overlapping vocals without the drums and the guitars sliding around at one point, which is very, again, a bit stoner. Uh, yep. But that's quite a nice effect. And then a really, really great guitar solo uh, in the middle, like relatively normal. <laughs> but it yeah, is kind of soulful too. It's very right, um, bluesy and raw. Yes. Um, and then continues playing under her vocals for a while. And yeah, just really, really fits very well with her lyrics, with her melody. Really nice guitar solo. Very tasteful, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, and not not overused or overstated at all. Just like fits with which again, when you're talking about a song that's nine minutes and thirteen seconds long, finding the right fit for things can be a challenge, right? Because a lot of times oh, yeah. the song goes yeah, on yeah. too long, it repeats itself too much, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, um, there are some sort of circular patterns in the song that I really like um, when she's talking about uh, like the notes under when she's talking about you know yourself, you can't lean on anyone. Do you trust yourself to walk through all this time you've lost? You know, that kind of stuff. There's this sort of circular um, pattern to the notes there that I really like. So, yeah, it is It is a very emotionally raw song and very doomy in parts. Yeah. If I have one criticism, actually, it is, you were talking about sort of not repeating yourself. Um, but at the end, it does exactly the opposite. At the end, it goes all quiet. And then suddenly there's a new set of lyrics that don't match anything else that's come before, like tonally or even in their rhythm or melody. They're completely, it's a bit like, you know, the, we talked when we did the typo negative album, they have a tendency, like the last two minutes of a track just sounds like a completely different song. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what happens here, but 
in this case, I don't know, it kind of feels like it undercuts the climax of the song in a way for me, because there is a climax at the end of the final chorus. Yeah, like really seven great. and a half minutes. Right, and yeah. if they ended it there, I just feel like it would have been a bit stronger. I don't think it needed these last two verses, uh, in which, like I say, don't sort of match with anything else. And yeah, for me, they're just kind of spoil the ending a little bit. It's a shame because right. the rest of the song, I agree with you, is really great and holds itself considering the length. Um, well, and that you part that you mentioned, that that climax is so great that you're it absolutely is. right. You could have just ended it. But man, how many bands fall into that trap of like, yeah. <laughs> just stop it right there. Yeah, and you, yeah. you would have like the perfect, and that song still would have been eight minutes long and would have right. ended on it, just a killer note. Well, and then would have gone straight into track four, No Good. Which is a, another up-tempo, balls-to-the-wall rock song. It, absolutely right. It's three minutes 30, so blessedly short. Um, I saw one reviewer describe this as their Led Zeppelin track. Um, okay. I, I'm not sure I'd quite go that far, but I can see where that review is coming from. It is a straight-up rocker, uh, it, and it does rock. It's got a good riff. She performs great on it. Um, my one criticism, uh, and... I could level this at a lot of modern bands, actually, not even just metal, um, is there's no bass chord change between the verse and the chorus. Mm-hmm. Like, even the chord progression is basically the same. And so it's, I don't know, there just isn't enough separation between the verse and the chorus to my liking. I like a bit more, obviously, this is the chorus. Right. Um, but that said, it, like I said, it's a great riff. She performs great on it. Um yeah, you know, it's a good sort of palate cleanser after the long stretch of the previous track. Well, and that's sort of been the ebb and the flow of the first four songs, right? Is you have uh, first song seven minutes long, then palate cleanser, much, yep. you know, just sort of straight ahead. Then nine minutes, 13 second song, palate cleanser. And I, so uh, that push and pull of the first four songs, I think, really goes to what you were saying before of the first half of this album being really strong because it's yeah. giving you time to recover in between those much longer songs with something that just punches you. Right. Something that just gets you tapping your toes yeah, exactly. and nodding your head. And yeah, you know, so you never uh, feel like you're stuck in one. Cause some of these albums that have like these super long, you know, uh, songs and everything, it feels like it's all one track, you know, like, yeah, you, well, you get, and when we did the neurosis album, that was a criticism that yes. some people, you know, some of our listeners had of that album. And I can see where they're coming. From. I disagree, obviously, but I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. But here, there you're getting your stops and starts. You're you're getting that um, clear delineation between songs. So, yeah, yeah. Well, and so, uh, f- uh, you know, it, and it, there it goes again because <laughs> the next track, track five, 
which is called Blue. This track is, this is the longest track on the album. Yes. This is nine minutes, 30 seconds. With your snare drum intro. Yeah, buckle up. Yeah. <laughs> we're in this for the long haul. Um, yeah, I love that rolling, where you get the to- the rolling tom pattern first at the start, yep. with the guitars ringing over the top, and then, yeah, it builds into uh, rolling snares. I love that. that. That's my kind of intro, you know, like ominous, building up to something very atmospheric. I love that. Well, and this is another song that sort of builds and starts to swell and then at like a minute and 20 seconds crashes, right? And just really kind of explodes. Um, I like on this song too that her vocals feel almost exploratory. Like you're not sure where they're going to go, you know, as she's singing. And the bass line also feels sometimes like you're not sure exactly where it's going to go. And I like how those two things kind of play off of one another. Um, And I almost feel like when they have these bigger songs, they go into them with this notion that they're going to explore. You know, like it, it just sort of takes shape as it goes sort of thing. At least I feel like this song this song does kind of take shape as it goes. Like they're kind of almost figuring it out. It almost feels a little bit improvisational to me in that it's sort of figuring out where it wants to go. And it has much like the other songs, the, the heavy doomy screamy parts that come in, but also these quieter moments that are more dreamy and that you can kind of hear the keyboard a little bit and stuff like that. And so I like all the different elements of this song. And, and it reminds me in places of like Soundgarden. This is where right. I definitely felt like there was some Soundgarden in here. Um, but it, it feels very sort of dreamy to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first three and a half minutes is completely instrumental. You know, it's, it's three and a half minutes before we get any vocals whatsoever. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's some of Melanie's bass work uh, during that instrumental passage is, is really nice, actually. Um, and then at six minutes, it suddenly speeds up. And it gets really groovy and becomes like a straight rocker, but it like for less than a minute and then it slows down again. It is like you say, it feels like lots of push and pull and almost like a jam in places. Uh, It's not my favorite track on the album, possibly for that reason, because it doesn't feel as tight as some of the other tracks, but, but it is still, you know, at least it's again, doesn't sound like every other track on the album. It's one, one criticism you can't level at this album is that the tracks all sound the same. Um, 
And this track shows it because there is nothing else on the album that is quite like this and feels so almost jazzy as this track. Right. Um, And so would we say that that's the first side then? Yeah, I think so. Well, and here's another weird thing about this album. Like lots of the tracks end with um, like uh, a rotating Leslie single guitar tone or something just fading out. Uh-huh. Uh or a bit of feedback or whatever and it just like rings and rings and rings and then bang the next track just cuts straight in uh with no you know gap fair enough you know plenty of bands do that but then there are some tracks that don't and actually do end and you get like a second or two of silence before the next track which yep. i find really it's like you know one or the other you know um <laughs> you mind up uh you know i can understand people who do that on one or two tracks but they do it on so many but then there are maybe three tracks that actually end completely uh before starting the next track and that's one of them blue i believe is one of those tracks that ends fully and then uh the next track starts sleeping on- witch right yeah so it does feel like the end of a side and i don't know whether that's but like i say it's not the only place it happens it's just that it happens rarely so (laughs) who knows whether that was meant to feel like the end of side one or something i don't know but yes it does lead into track six which you say is called sleeping witch Which is another tune I feel like is super doomy. Yes. Yes, it is. It's also another long one. Now, yep. this is where we get into, rather than having, as you say, the long track, short track, long track, short track dynamic, we suddenly get lots of long tracks. And I was just going to say that, as I think maybe that's where the second half of this album kind of falters, is that by not having, and you could, you, we can argue about whether or not that two-minute uh, number nine slot Right, because yeah. I don't does think it really works count? as that. Yeah. No, I don't think it does. Um, it doesn't have that push pull that the front half of the album had. So the front half of the album doesn't let anything get stale because right. it has that push pull. The back half of the album kind of forgets that rule that it sort of established for it's almost like the like whether you're making a movie or a story or whatever, like once you establish the ground rules, you have to live within your own rules. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, on the first half of the album they sort of establish the ground rules of what you can expect. And then they break those rules on the back half of the album, maybe to their detriment. 
Well, I think it's just one of those, I mean, like I said, this is exactly what happened to me was I, I bought this album. I love those first, well, I actually love the first six tracks because I do really like Sleeping Witch. I do too. Um, you know, it's very slow. It feels kind of swampy, very Southern. Uh, the, this is uh, a track with a very prominent rotating Leslie effect on the guitar, which I'm a sucker for. Um, the the riff when it comes in the sort of the electric riff you know similar to the clean bit which is a nice effect and the chorus is very powerful uh it's got a great ending so i really like this track but to me when i after i bought this album i basically got to about this track and then that's when i just started to my focus would just start to slip uh-huh. uh and i'd get to the end of the album and i'd go oh shit i'd completely missed like the last three or four tracks you know, I wasn't sort of aware of this is one track, this is another track, this is the next track. Um, uh, and, you know, there's a few albums where that happens if you're not paying attention. And so what I found listening, obviously in prep for this episode, listening to it again and again uh, more closely, basically when this track starts, you have to settle in for the long haul, as it were, because yeah, right. you're not, as you say, you don't get that push-pull dynamic of long track, short track, long track. So it's like, oh, okay, right, sit down and settle in because we're going on a ride. Yeah, you um, got to reset yourself for side two because you're, yeah. it is, it, you're in for the long haul. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But like I say, I do like this track. I do too. Yeah, Sleeping Witch, very doomy. I like this track. I think it's a good, if we're considering this side two, and I don't know if it, I'm sure we could track it down, like what what's considered side one and side two on this album. But in my head, this is the beginning of side two, and it it's a good opener, certainly for what you can expect from side two. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure if actually, I'm just going to quickly look up on uh, Discogs and see if, oh yes, yes, there was a vinyl release of this. Uh, I wasn't sure if there ever was a vinyl release, but there was, in fact, there was a, it was a double album. Uh Interesting. Okay. Right, right. So here's the here's the vinyl track list. Uh three tracks on the first side of disc one. Oh so okay. Parsons Curse, Whispering World, Shake and Shift aside are uh, side one. And I then like no, that. no Good, Blue, and Sleeping Witch. Oh is... interesting. Oh no, sorry, no, no, my mistake. Sorry, no, it is no good and then blue. So just those two tracks on side two. And then yes, no, you're right, Sleeping Witch is the first track on side three that's two tracks sleeping which says somewhere and then the last three tracks are side four so huh. actually yes this is effectively side two it's a side three but you you know same difference it's the start of a new uh set of tracks as it isn't were. that interesting yeah if you break them up in that fashion i'm yeah, gonna so have to go back and listen now starting side two with no good which is the the, the led zepp rocker that's an interesting choice yeah, I'm huh. going to have to go back and listen now in those chunks and see <laughs> how it works. Because isn't that always interesting, like how they choose to we talk well, about I wonder how much of it is just about runtime and how much... I would assume it is, right? You but, can fit but, on a side of vinyl, yeah. But if we, if it was, if we were listening to it on vinyl, how would that huh. sit? Interesting. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so Sleeping Witch, like I say, good track. Overall good track. Uh, and then leads to track seven, South of Somewhere. Watchmen see these things will hold them. 
Yeah, south of somewhere, I, I like that you get the wind chimes kind of blowing in the background. This is another song that I feel like they, as they get to the end of the song, they do that wall of sound like at six minutes. Like it really, yeah, it just all comes together and it, it sounds like more than the sum of its parts, you know. And I think that they do a good job of that throughout the album of when they, when they build that wall of sound, you get to hear each individual piece of that wall. But when it comes together, it's so much bigger than all of those individual pieces. And that's what I really like about how they, that, that ebb and flow that they have. And so, um, this is another one that really builds. And, and to me, like when you build like that and you deliver something so powerful towards the end of the song, like it almost forgives whatever lulls that you might have in the song before that, because it ends on such a strong note, you know? Yeah. Well, and it does have some big lulls, this track. Like, it's, yeah. six, it's six and a half minutes long. The first minute and a quarter of that is, you know, the sort of the special effects stuff, like you get wind and chimes and gongs yeah. and a spooky piano. Then the guitar comes in, uh, another delay, you know, delay pedal guitar effect. But that goes on for another minute before anything else happens. So the first two and a quarter minutes of a six and a half minute track, you know, is just build up. Uh, and not a lot of build-up, really. There's not an awful lot happening. No, not in so comparison the, to their other songs. Right, so the actual track is, what's that, like four minutes, 15 yeah. long, you know. Um, but it feels a lot longer because they've got these two and a quarter minutes at the start of yeah. not an awful lot happening. Um, no, and that's where you get into trouble because you have trained people to this point to appreciate the builds that you right. are putting together and they're always of substance. And so when you don't deliver on that, then you're kind of, that's where you start to lose people's interest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Which, uh, and this is what the first track, as I say, where I sort of, my attention normally starts to slip, which is a shame because if you listen to the track itself, it is, it's a, it's another good one. Um, you know, lyrically, it's great. There's a nice melody there. Um, and when it does take off, you know, it, it really rocks. Yeah. Um, and the, the hold at the start of the lines on the chorus and the, the, not the, the, and the dead of night bit. I mean, that's just, that's great. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think it's kind of, it is a little, uh, underserved, unfortunately, by having that big gap of, you know, not a lot happening at the start, which, you know, can, yeah, as you said, your attention can wander a little too easily, unfortunately. Right. You, there's only so thin that you can make a build to something like right. you, you have to have enough, <laughs> yeah. you, you have to have enough material to keep people interested so that they want to see what you're building. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so track eight is drown. And I believe
which is eight minutes and 18 seconds long. Another, yeah, this is the third longest song on the album. Um, and it has another slow and atmospheric intro with sparse ringing guitars. Like, yeah, this is starting to sort of uh, become a, a bit of a trademark. Yes. Um, you get string noise as well, and you got brushes on the snare rather than sticks, which is nice, because I think that's the only place you hear that on the album. Uh, when the tune does really sort of kick in and you get those slow almost slurred vocals which is nice yeah as well. and then like some screamed lyrics under her singing at points yeah. right it's a really kind of drive home almost like this voice in your head sort of quality and some of the lyrics are dynamite um a passage that i pulled out maybe when the sun comes up you'll see your waves you've gone too far out yeah, You know, which to me in my head, because I was thinking of the whole like sea vibe, like I just love that visual of like, you know, you've kind of lost yourself and you don't notice it until you're too far out. Um, yeah, there's something about these lyrics. And again, you know, ambiguous. We don't know for sure, but there is something about these lyrics that to me suggest it's a very personal song. For I mean, sure. they, and they all are, of course. But this one, there's something about it. Like it sounds... Like, and again, this is just speculation, but it sounds to me like this is her observing a woman in an abusive relationship who's unable to escape. And when and, you put it together with finding, the first song. finding herself unable to help as well. It's, yeah. uh, well, right. I mean, my first thought was that this was about her parents. I but then also I, thought that first. But I, but I couldn't find anything in any interviews where, like, I found one reference to her parents, which is basically that her mum's Spanish uh, and her dad was over there you know, working or something when they met and then they moved back to America. But there's no, you know, it's not like she's talked about coming from a broken home or or anything like that. So it's really hard to say. And like I say, it, you, know, you don't want to speculate too much because you don't know what somebody's personal situation is. But regardless of how true it might be, these are, I think, some of the most personal and powerful lyrics, regardless of the rest of the song, just the lyrics on themselves. By themselves on the album, like really, really emotional, powerful stuff. Well, and it like, even if we didn't apply it to what it feels like it's about there, but just the whole idea of kind of like something overshadowing your identity, like you're in something and you, you only moments of you actually come to the surface because this thing is overshadowing who you really are on a regular yeah. day. And that could be a relationship. It could be this, you know, church situation that they got themselves into. It could be um, moments in your life where you are just down a path where it's, it's not even the real you and, but people can see glimpses of the real you sort of thing like that. The visuals that this song conjures for sure are just super powerful, especially and sad when you're, when you're thinking of it as her observing someone else, right? Because oh, yeah, she's, yeah. she's just watching this person who. Uh, you only see glimpses of who they really are because this other thing in their life just completely overshadows them. Right. And like I said, feeling, you know, that she's unable to help herself, right. which, you know, I'm sure most of us have been in a similar situation where you wish you could help, but it just, you for one reason or another, you just can't. Um, yeah. And I think very, our, very our immediate thought is for this to be like something like mental health related, right? Or, or something like that. But but also it could be it could be you could see this situation where you have someone who's very medically ill in your family, right? And and your life becomes about taking care of them. And it's not about you anymore. It's about you right. taking care of this person and and really you lose yourself to that because that is what takes 
all of your time and attention. And so, um, yeah, yeah. It's there's just, so uh, so many things that it could be about. Like, like I say, that's why I don't like yeah. to speculate too much. But yep. uh, but regardless of what it's about, yeah, very very powerful musically. I think it is lacking a little because it feels like it's all build and no release. That's my my only sort of musical criticism of it is that there doesn't Which, feel like there's a moment that really lets everything out. You know, I agree. But also, the name of the song is "Drown." And it is that sort of, so thematically it almost true carries yeah. that theme of like, there is no release. You're, you're, you can't get out of this. Like it's not, whereas some of the other songs have much more of a catharsis to them of the release and the, you know, the kind of letting go where this, it's like you're drowning. You just can't escape it. Like it's there's a, no, it's a slow motion suffocation. It, exactly. Yeah. And there's no out. And so, um, maybe we're giving them too much, maybe I'm giving them too much credit in this, you know, in this well, read of that, but I do. Well, or maybe not. I don't know. Because like I say, the one impression I did get, you know, the one thing that does seem fairly unambiguous is that they think about this shit, you know, right. that nothing, nothing here happens by accident. Right. And if we are going under that, that, uh, read on their music, then this could be very intentional for sure. Hey, yeah. So anyway, so uh, yeah, moving on to track nine, Minus. Which to me uh, felt like it could have been a B side on OK Computer from Radiohead, <laughs> and that's not. A, I love that album, so I'm I'm not. But I got a very Radiohead vibe on this one. Yeah, it's. I mean, like you say, you know, if this is an attempt to be the palate cleanser, I don't think it does it not succeeds. fulfill that. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, it, it's nice and short. It's a nice little thing. It's it's inoffensive. It's not, but it's nothing special either. It doesn't kind of. Uh, it doesn't stand out enough, I think, to serve that purpose, which is a shame. It's just kind of, it's just there. Yeah, it doesn't, it definitely does not. When you had two really good palate cleansers on the first half, this does not do what needed to be done on the second half. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is a shame because if ideally it's setting up the final track, track 10, which is Blackwater Vision. Thank you. 
and this is five minutes fifty. Um, this this is one that she has actually been very explicit and said this track is all about that business with the cult. Um, uh, and you know, you can I think you can see that very clearly. Clearly, the baptism the stuff for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's it's a good end to the album. Uh, it's it has a powerful opening with like rising chords. Yep. It gets very electrified on the chorus. Um, I love the bit towards the end, the stop, the stop start rhythm of the bit where she's singing black dark tunnel crawl inside. I say yes. singing like more shouting more or less. Those were the um, lyrics I pulled out too. Yeah. Well, and the line after that, I'm swallowing your death. I know. What a fucking great lyric. <laughs> I also like the one now a dark light surrounds me. Right. Yeah. yeah My yeah, spirit yeah. is possessed. Like yep. just, uh, man, there's yeah. some, the, these lyrics uh, overall across the album, she writes some damn fine lyrics. It's quality stuff, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Very yeah. good. And the guitar solo here, again, a really, really good solo to end the album on. Like the solo actually feels like more of an album closer than the track as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. I mean, this whole, th- this song, the notes that I have on this one is, uh, that it's very reflective and very, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it just, it, it is a nice capper on what you've gotten through this album. And I, I almost feel like it's, it's, uh, with what they've given you over these 10 songs to go back to what we talked about earlier about the interviews and people wanting more details and stuff like that. Like, I almost feel like by the end of this album, like she can just turn to everybody and go, what else do you want? Like, it's all there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's all there. Just go back and listen to the album. Just go back and listen to the music, go back and, and, and read those lyrics. And it's uh, all your answers are there. And I don't have anything else to say about this. Like it's all there. Which reminds me, you mentioned David Lynch. Uh, earlier um what was he talking about was it uh eraser head somebody asked him somebody said something like well you know uh, this um film is clearly you know about such and such uh i can't i can't remember what it was but they said to him like oh really would you like to elaborate on that and he just went no <laughs> yeah no and the th- yeah, absolutely. And that is a pat that is a that. standard answer from him. Like I mean, just a mat like my favorite thing about the the return of Twin Peaks is how it was so not like anything that anyone wanted or expected from the return of Twin Peaks. Right. To me makes it one of the greatest works of art that's ever been created. Um it's just fascinating to me. But yeah, I mean the my biggest revelation about David Lynch was was uh when in learning more about him I realized that everything he's ever done is a painting. And as soon as you realize that everything that he's ever done is a painting, everything that he does makes perfect sense now. Yeah. Like all yeah. of his movies, every, all of his narratives, all of it, he, it's a painting. And so that to me just kind of blew me away about him, but he is very much the same, you know, in terms of like, take what you want out of it. Um, whatever your interpretation is like, I'm not going to argue with it, but also I'm not helping you with that either. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, typo negative. We're very much like that, actually. Yeah. Uh, people were always asking Pete Steele to elaborate on his lyrics, especially some of them which were, you know, a little over the top. Some of them could easily be misconstrued. They were, you know, uh, sort of extreme satire, uh, like, like the lieback issue. Like, you know, when does satire and parody actually just become the thing that you are satirizing? Um, and lieback again, are a great example. And people were always trying to get Pete Steele to 
elaborate on that and explain himself and he'd just be like no no it's all there you know you, you take right. what you want from it like it's it is what it is and all you do by explaining more about it is you shut certain people out right yeah you're, you're actually taking accessibility away from people so someone who has listened to your song and believes that it is speaking specifically to their situation and what they have been through in their life and and helping them deal with that and then you come out and you say oh actually no it's all about this and it's not anything like what that person, you know, took away from that song. Like, why would you want to know that? Right. Like, why do you want to know? Why do you want those answers when you've already made it something that works for you? Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah. And I've, I've had occasions like that myself as as a listener where, you know, I've sort of uh, not only with music, but it has definitely happened with music where I've listened to something, sort of taken one interpretation of meaning away from it and been quite affected by it. and then been told you know read heard whatever in an interview that it, i got it completely and utterly wrong yep and, it, and, and it it's actually, always disappointing right it, it kind of spoils it a little yep you know it's like oh it's not as profound as i thought it was what a shame even like <laughs> I, even things like easter eggs for me like when i especially like being a horror junkie like i'll watch a movie and i'll be like oh my god that is such a great nod to that it's such a great nod to that movie that i grew up watching that i love and clearly the director knew that that was a nod to that. And then you find out later, like, nope, there was no intent behind that at all. And right. Complete like, coincidence. And it's yeah. like, no, like I wanted it to be that so bad. Um, yeah. It actually because says I'm more about looking. you than the director. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I don't want to know about any of that. Like I do love the DVD extra stuff, but I get very, uh, I get very weird about the Easter egg stuff because I, yeah. I want it to be the thing I want it to be. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, getting back to the album, I completely agree that this is this is definitely one of those cases where I actually don't want to know anymore. Uh, you know, much as it sounds like she's had a fascinating, if somewhat traumatic life, um, right. I actually don't want to know specifically what this song is about or what these lyrics are about uh, because they're so powerful anyway, even without the, that specific right. knowledge. The, yeah, I don't need any more from that. No, she's given you enough, like more than enough, right? And so you can you could listen to this song hundreds of thousands of times for the rest of your life and probably pick different pieces out, you know, every time right. you listen to it. So um, there's a lot to revisit. That's what I really like about this album in summary is that this is an album that I, I feel like all albums reward multiple listens but this is an album where there's so many different pieces to explore whether it's lyrically whether it's musically whether it's emotionally um that there's a lot of re-listenability of this album for sure that's absolutely a word well done yeah it is now (laughs) look for it next year in the dictionary (laughs) it doesn't take much these days yeah no i i've definitely i have a a greater appreciation for the back half of this album now than i did before uh that has come through that repeated re-listening but i i will still stand by my opinion that the first five to six tracks are like you, you that could be the album and i don't actually think it would suffer much for it do you know what i mean well, and it would be almost as long as many albums out there right. today. Like you could have, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and in some way, like you said, it was a double album, right, that they put out. So um, I am going to go back and listen in the chunks that the double album put it out in, though, because I want to see how those groups of songs hang together right. as a side of an album. That's interesting to me. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, well, obviously, homework is uh, for next episode now is going to be the prong album Rude Awakening, which, uh, once again, as I said, was suggested by Jonathan Moore. So, uh, well done, Jonathan, uh, by default, almost. Um, uh, and yeah, like I say, I think that's going to be interesting because we just we haven't done a straight industrial album. Uh, Psalm 69, Ministry Psalm 69, is on my list of albums to talk about but we just haven't got around to it yet so this yep. will be the first sort of yeah proper industrial album that we've done um so yeah i'm looking forward to that me too all right so uh let me just give the usual spiel uh to thank everyone for listening and say remember if you enjoy the show please spread the word rate us on itunes and the apple podcasts uh app um and the itunes store and don't forget that you can also find us on the google play podcast store and you can rate us there as well and you can support us directly at patreon.com slash thrash it out if you want to get in touch go to thrash for links to email and our twitter accounts um and of course you can join the facebook group and chat to us and all the other listeners that are there at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out uh that's all we got time for this one. I say all we got time for. What am I? Who am I kidding? We could be in, <laughs> That's we all could the two hours hour. that we have time <laughs> yeah. for. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. God, what am I? What am I? T- I'm turning into some like terrible college radio DJ. Hey, I'm just happy that when we get a listener album or something like that, that we. Uh, my goal at the end of every episode is to feel like, did we do it justice? Oh, I did think we, we give did. a. We yeah. have a good and and I I feel uh, I feel that we did this one justice. I think so. Absolutely. So yeah. Uh, see you next time everyone thanks for listening Um, and hopefully we'll be able to do justice to Prong on the next episode can't wait bye for now take care